0: Today's Spirit in Action interview was recorded in early July at the Friends General Conference Gathering in Grinnell, Iowa. In attendance were two of the three co-editors of Black Fire, African American Quakers on Spirituality and Human Rights. As I'm sure most of you are aware, I'm a Quaker, and you might think this is a parochial book or topic. It's not. What you'll find in today's program is a delving into the issues surrounding racism, discussion and insights which are applicable to all American society. And although Quakers have, generally, a very positive image with respect to race relations due to a history which includes many pioneers against racism, segregation, and slavery, this is not a pure white palette. Yes, there's a lot of good, but there's also plenty of dark spots and failures. And my hope is that by inviting you into this examination of our past, we all learn how to make a better future for people of all races, and that we learn to examine what holds us back from real community with all of our co travelers on this planet. Specifically, we'll be visiting with Paul Kreese, one of the co editors of Black Fire. Paul, as you'll hear, grew up in a black community, although he is white, so he has always closely identified with African Americans. He has a Ph.D. in political science from Purdue and an M.A. in peace studies from Earlham College. He is currently Associate Professor of Politics at Indiana University East. Paul Kreese is co-author of three books, including Social Justice, Poverty and Race, Normative and Empirical Points of View, and Much Research and Many Articles on Race. In a moment, we'll go to the 2011 FGC gathering at the Grinnell University campus in Iowa to speak with today's Spirit in Action guest, Paul Kreese. But first, I want to start you out with half of a wonderful song by David Massingill, Number one in America deals with racism over the past half century. As I said, I'll play about half of it now and finish it at the end of this interview. Spoiler alert. There's a couple true hopeful stories in the second half so remember to listen all the way to the end. It's a great song by a great musician number one in America by David Massengill. In
2: 1963 In my hometown Bristol, Tennessee Sitting on my mother's knee Watching Amos and Andy on TV Amos was Santa Claus on Christmas Eve Little girl is tugging at his sleeve, singing, I have a doll, my own color, please. He said, Honey, you can make believe. Just then came a call on the telephone. It was the mayor, asked if my daddy was home. This was for his ears alone. Mom and me listened on the second phone. Bay said, the freedom riders are on their way. They'll be here by Christmas Day. Our laws, they vow to disobey. Cause our school's as white as the Milky Way. Well, now we're really in a fix. Can't let them show us a black like country hicks. But once we let the races mix, it's goodbye Jim Crow politics. First it's 40 acres and a mule Then they want to swim in our swimming pool Pretty soon they'll be wanting to go to school Where we were taught the golden rule Imagine them telling us how to live Imagine them telling us how to live We're number one in America, number one. In America, beat the drum for the Sam. Overcoming oh, in Birmingham. Oh, to be number one in America. Axe handles versus the right to vote for all white all she wrote, back of the bus, don't rock the boat, separate but equal, by the throat. That was twenty-odd years ago, where's the change in the status quo? The freedom land is lying low, it's shackled down on a rotten road. And a black-skinned man still gets the snub When he applies to the country club But he still gets hired to trim the shrubs Get down on the floor and scrub And there's a businessman Held on his yacht He's a rena sunshine patriarch And all this talk about boy He says it's all a comedy plot to be Number one in America, number one in America. Beat the drum the the same. Overcoming Birmingham. Dynamite in a Baptist church. Four teenage girls lost in the lurch. Fire hoses in the billy club. Holy dogs and the racist thugs. The night riders yeah, and the lynching mob. Lawmen say they're only doing their shit. To stay number one in America. Ku Klux Klan is still around. With the
0: permit to- thank you very much, Paul, for joining us.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: And I'll mention also that Madeline Schaefer is co-host today for Spirit in Action. Madeline, well, it's Mark- great to have you here.
4: Yeah, thank you for letting me join in the conversation.
0: Let's jump right in. I think, Paul, that you have a pretty long association with Quakers. Does it go back to the womb, I think?
3: It goes back at least as far as the womb. If you do genealogical, it's further than that, but it certainly goes back that far.
0: Never tempted to leave?
3: Why would I leave home?
0: Okay. (laughs) Sometimes some of us want to leave because the Religious Society of Friends is an all-too-human institution. And part of the essays in here point out our failings. So even though Quakers were early involved in work for equality, were opposed to slavery, a number of individual Quakers were involved in Underground Railroad, etc., even though Quakers worked with Martin Luther King, in spite of all of that, Quakers, again, in spite of their high ideals of equality that go back have dragged their feet sometimes, and sometimes they've done embarrassing things.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, as you said, Quakers are human, and I think it's important to note that, because all too often, the people that we revere, we put on pedestals and make and take them out of reach, and then that makes sure that we aren't involved, and the whole idea is to realize we're all broken, we're all jaded, we're all not where we should be, but given that, there were still some bright spots and that means even flawed individuals can be involved. If we say, well, gee, I can't do that, they're just too good. And friends are part of the American culture, part of the American experience. And the other reality of the United States is we're a racist nation, have been from the beginning. Our Constitution is racist, Um, many of uh, of our Supreme Court decisions, on and on and on. So how can you not live in that environment and not be involved in it? Having said that, friends do have a very good background in history, but they're human. And what that says is that the ones that were doing it, the ones that did get involved, deserve an extra amount of praise because it's all, it's much more difficult to go against the in group than to go against people who, who you're not with. And friends read friends out of meeting for being involved in abolition. Friends got in trouble for standing up for equality just as much as they got in trouble for not. (laughs) Um, And friends have a human history well-meaning people who wanted to be law-abiding. There were laws against African Americans holding office or living in certain parts of town. And so sometimes it was, well, I don't want to break the law, but then my response is, well, there's two sets of laws. There's God's law and there's man's law. And God's law always comes first. It doesn't mean we always do that, but if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, that's what happens. Also, there was a lot of folklore, there was the folklore that African-Americans aren't friends because they jump around a lot and sing and praise and and unprogrammed friends aren't like that. Well, that's a mythology. It's a racist mythology because there are lots of unprogrammed African-Americans. There were meetings that, y'all come into our meeting, but sit in the back of the room, or gee, you've been in attendance for 15 years, but that's okay. You know, there's a lot of cultural assumptions there. In the 60s, there was a lot of cultural assumptions at Quaker colleges that said, well, we let you onto our campus. The least you can do is not raise hackles, so, not expect stuff. And that's not necessarily positive, but it's real. And the only way you can right wrongs is to recognize that there. And the bottom line for me is friends can do that, have done that, will do that. But they have to be told, you know, you're not exactly where you need to be, and this is where you've been, and this is where you are, and this is where you need to be. So what we did is very selective vignettes, of African American Quakers or, or African Americans very close to Quakers who combined religion and politics which is a real issue of mine. How do you have speaking truth to power? Well the power is a white power structure and a lot of Quakers are in the white power structure especially in Quaker colleges. They weren't always as responsive. Our own college a place that I know something about because I live in Richmond. One of the first African-Americans at Irwin wanted to date and marry a Caucasian girl. And and they convinced him not to do it while he was there some of the presidents of a college haven't been entirely respectful of the African american the whole idea of reparations and i can go on and on those are serious issues and friends haven't always been on the forefront we need to recognize that to understand how much we really have done but how much we need to go fgc is wonderful in the sense that they're publishing it because we haven't gotten a lot of African americans published either
0: Well, I'm glad that you're part of the effort. I think what I want to start with here is a little bit of the history each of us three have personally with racism. I think we're in somewhat different generations. You're 65, I'm 57, and Madeline is 24. 24. Madeline, Mm -hmm. what's your experience with racism growing up?
4: My experience with racism, wow. I grew up in a middle, upper-class family going to Quaker school, lived in a pretty nice area. So it was not something that I needed to confront. I attended French childcare Center, French childcare, which is right next to American French Service Committee where my mother worked. And it was a very mixed, lots of different races um, and classes there. And so I was definitely exposed to a lot of races. But then I went to French schools, which really does a lot to bring in different races. But, you know, it's incredibly expensive. And so the reality of that is that there, are, it's, it's pretty white. But I think in terms of when I had my most transformative experience with the race was when I went to a work camp in West Philadelphia. We, there was a conversation at night with a man who had been in prison and that held a lot of rage against white people, but then had kind of had this transformation and now was working to help heal you know, the wounds of racism. And we had this incredibly powerful discussion and that completely blew open my You know, I experienced a lot of guilt. I think I was about 15, opened up my eyes to race, which I think to a certain degree in my generation, there was this sense that the problem had been solved, you know? Um, And then I think when I was 15, I was like, wow, you know, the problem, we can talk about it, but the problem has not been solved. And, you know, I've had friends. I also went to a really nice, very expensive liberal arts college in Minnesota And I said to one of my friends, who I was so frustrated because they weren't political at all. And I said to them, like, and he was saying, you know, I'm (laughs) post-racism. And, like, that was something that really bugged me and was, like, a big point of contention between us. Because we kind of get this sense that because I'm liberal, I vote Democrat, I'm not a racist. Mm -hmm. That racism doesn't exist. But that's easy for us to say as white people living very privileged lives. So that's been my experience with racism, Those are the first that just come to mind.
0: Well, I was born in 1954. That was the year of Brown versus Board of Education. You know, all deliberate speed, they got to get integrating schools and so on. Of course, I didn't realize that at the age of zero. But I grew up in basically a small-town Wisconsin family where the racism was part of the structure of life. You don't recognize it if you live in the milieu. And that's what I lived in. So I grew up using the N-word for Brazil nuts and eeny, meeny, miny, mo, etc. It's right in there. And I don't remember any talk about blacks being inferior to whites. In fact, at one point when I was seven, we moved down to Texas, and I went to school in an integrated school in Texas. So I didn't know of racism as that, but I, my dad had some very strong racist identity. At a certain point... My older sister brought home a black friend to our house. My dad kicked him out. It's that kind of embarrassing thing. And my dad learned and changed uh, over the years, and I don't think by the time he died he was nearly that same person. So I got to live through it. But one of the things is that, you know, I graduated high school in 1972. The civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s had already happened. There had been major change. Blacks had gone from being negroes to coloreds to blacks to and you know of course african-americans or afro-americans i've seen these changes and one point it was nonviolence with dr martin luther king and then i lived through the experience of riots in milwaukee and race riots and so so that's part of what i've seen in my life and then i went and lived in africa for two years in the peace corps so i was in a village where i was the white person I got to be the minority and I was a privileged minority, so it's not the same as being black in the US. But I did realize at one point when there were demonstrations against colonists, I looked around and I said, there's only one person here who has the skin color of colonists. So I, I could feel being in the minority there too. It doesn't make me be wise about it, but I've been able to see growth happening in our culture and I recognize that we've got a lot more to go. Paul, what about you?
3: Oh, well, mine's entirely different from either one of yours. I grew up very poor in a slum area above New York where 85% of the population was African-American, 10% was Hispanic, 3% was Native American, and 2% were white and Quaker. And we didn't live there because we chose it. We lived there because that's what we could afford. Because not all Quakers are middle class. Not all Quakers go to boarding school. So I grew up in a black neighborhood going to a black school. The first woman I can remember falling in love with was Diana Ross. And I know more about black music than I know about white music. Then I went to Co College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which was 90% white. And I associated with the janitors and, and the groundskeeper because those were my people but I was also Quaker and so I grew up with all of the wonderful stories of Quakers but I also grew up fighting redlining and, and housing discrimination from my meeting and so we were very active my parents were very supportive of that but I kept getting these conflicting realities here's, the, here's on one side all of this wonderful stuff Quakers have done and continue, because I was part of the civil rights movement, and I was down south, but I saw this distinction between an all-white meeting for worship, and our background of talking about how wonderful it is, and and we believed in civil rights, and there's no question about that, but we didn't live it, because we, I mean, the Quaker meeting was not in my neighborhood, we had to leave our neighborhood to go to the Quaker meeting, which was in an all-white neighborhood. So Quakers were racist, not because they chose to be, but because of their economic and political environment dictated it. And so when I went to college, I had people say to me, how come you're spending all your time with them? And I go, what do you mean? Well, you spend all your time with the African Americans. And I said, but those are people I grew up with. And, and I, they start talking about the civil rights movement and all of those negros and things like that. And I go, but wait a minute. These are my friends. These are truly were my friends. These were the people I grew up with. And I saw this dichotomy and being someone who's very analytical and questioning. And I went down south. And I said, no, this is not right. I mean, if Quakers are who they say they are, we need to do some, some revisioning and I can't tell you how many discussions I got in with fellow Quakers to say, well, but they're disruptive. They, they you know, they, they're all asking for things. And my response is, well, maybe they deserve the things they're asking for. Well, if, the, you know, all welfare babies will go down to the welfare office on any day. 90% of the people standing out getting handouts aren't black. So where do we get this? We get this from the culture, which says if you're white, you're right. If you're black, stay back. And as an academic, not surprisingly, doing research on race and ethnic and things like that, I came to a realization that um, African-American Quakers were pretty invisible. Not visible because of their lives, been visible because we're not talking about them. And hence, uh, Black Fire is the first book, original essays by african American Quakers on race and social justice that's ever been published. And here it is, the year 2011. Again,
0: the book we're talking about is Black Fire African American Quakers on Spirituality and Human Rights. It's co edited by Harold Weaver or Hal Weaver. Paul Kreese and Steve Angel are the three main editors. And there's Ann Nash and Emma Lipinski-Werner in there as well. So, Paul, what was it that brought about this book? How did this get started? Because... You've talked about some of the background. There's an yeah. easy amount of denial within the Religious Society yeah. of Friends about yeah. racism. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. did it get
3: And this is one reason why I've stayed within the Society of Friends, and particularly within the Traditional Conference, because there was a conference that several years ago, FGC, their conference on racism in Pittsburgh. And I was selected from my yearly meeting to go as one of the representatives from Ohio Valley meeting. While I was there and getting some of my colleagues upset, because I said things they they said, Well, I'm not a racist. we look, I'm here. And I said, Yeah, and you're going back to your white neighborhood. But I met Hal Weaver there. And Hal Weaver's African American, one of the original people involved in black study movements in the United States. He had done some work on film in African Americans. And i have done a lot of stuff. And so we said, Oh, I've been looking for a white person who I could write a book with, who I could feel comfortable with. And I wanted him to be Quaker. And given the fact that I spent the weekend, I was there not always being gentle to my colleagues. He thought I would be a good person. And so we began that. A few years later, uh, Hal was at a conference, and Steve Angel, who's written on African American history and works at, at Edgewood School of Religion, and he's done a lot of work. He taught at a historic black college for ten, thirteen years, and but he's in religion. I mean, Stephen is a professor of religion, and he thought this would be a good combination, and so we brought Steve on board. Then FGC was able to get some funding. And Barbara Mays, an excellent, excellent editor, uh, helped put this together. And now we're um, happily going around the country talk about it. And it's not just for Quakers. It's for people involved in the issues of religion and politics. So what does it take to be a spiritually strong but social and politically active person? can the two go together the history of race and so there's all sorts of things in there human relations and political science which i'm involved in so it's a good compilation of all the way from the beginning of the united states uh, there needs to be another volume which will include people outside the united states but we wanted to have one which is manageable and focused and so we talk only about that and we wanted to have women as well as men because again uh, women or another group of people who haven't always been allowed to sit at the table. So um, we're pretty proud of uh, of the book. And for me, it's uh, both a uh, religious testimony and a political science testimony.
0: It goes way back to before the U.S. was a country... William Bone was one of the early folks in this. I think you had the decision, by the way, that you weren't going to include any living people yeah. in this. You had, yeah. You had to be dead to get into yeah. this yeah. book.
3: Yeah. yeah.
0: It's a high price to pay, but, yeah. you know, right. there's the memorial of the book. Uh, William Bone was kind of interesting in several ways. And his transformation was so clearly a conviction of spirit. And then how that led to what he dealt with when he dealt with yeah. race, yeah. he was not an uppity black, right. but he was so conscientious. Mm-hmm. In many ways, I feel like his life and that of John Woolman mm-hmm. had heavy overlaps.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You're responsible for a certain number of yeah. the writings yeah. in yeah. here. Yeah. William Bowden doesn't happen to be one no, of No, he's yours. not one,
3: but he's a good example. I mean, people have always said to me who know me as a political activist, they assume that my political activism came from being a lifelong Democrat, which is not true. My political activism comes from the Bible that says you are stewards of the earth, and it is your responsibility to make that earth a better place. It just seems to me that health care and social security and child care are in the way that I want to increase the benefits of the earth. So friends sometimes forget that a religious testimony can be completely totally grounded in practical political reality. But the reason I do it is because I'm a steward of the earth, not because I'm a Democrat. Although I think Democrats do a pretty good job of being stewards of the earth. But it's that combination that we sought. That's why we picked the people. We picked people who saw their religious faith actively in the world and weren't afraid to say, I believe in God, and therefore I'm going to help those people in poverty.
0: Of the people that were included, can you give me your number one hero? And can you list your number one hero who didn't get included? The one that, you know, you said, I really want this person in there, but it didn't fit.
3: Yeah, Mom. The person who, if I could live, I would go back to would be Lucretia Mott. She is uh, probably one of my favorite Quakers of all time. Short. Uh, and her only
0: problem is she wasn't black, I guess. Yes,
3: that was her that loss. was her problem. Uh, but the person that, that the the one that the, George Sawyer was the first. Director of African American Studies at Rome College. Born and raised in Indianapolis, but lived in Richmond for much of his life. The first Director of African American Studies, who got into a fit with uh, Tom Jones, and we have documented history of this. George Sewell wrote a, an article in Friends Journal, which is in the book, and saying that it's all right for Friends to talk about being on the barricades, but when it comes to African Americans in your neighborhood, that's a different story. And Tom Jones was not happy because he said Tom Jones was the president of Rome College and a well-known Quaker. Took him to task for not being supportive enough of the college and and other people uh, being nice to him. And the point is that we end up being colonialist mentally by saying, well, we expected you to be nice. Well, my question is, well, why? what makes you any different for me. If someone's been hurt, someone should say I've been hurt. And we should know better than that. Because we saw that happening. We saw that happening in Richmond, Indiana, where African Americans had to go to the back door to get service. And the reason I like George Sawyer is that the other question is, well civil rights movement is over we don't have to worry about race anymore, or we're post-racial now. Well, we're not. We're better off than we were, and friends are in the forefront of that. But unfortunately, friends have the reputation, they have to to live up to that reputation.
4: I was just wondering if you think that perhaps the reason why these writings have gone unnoticed, and these people have not been remembered throughout Quaker history is because of the very challenging nature of what they
3: wrote. Oh, I think so. I mean, no one likes to be challenged. No one likes to be told that what you think you've done, you really haven't done. And there are a lot of people out there who are nasty. I mean, not all African-Americans are sweet, wonderful, lovely folks. There are things out there that are not accurate. But then your response should be to sit down with them and say, okay, um, what is it that you think I've done? let's see what we can do to arrange this instead of saying well you don't understand i was in the civil rights movement well yeah but you went home i mean when people say well you were in the civil rights movement," i say yeah but i went back to cedar rapids iowa you had to stay here my face wasn't black yours is it's that cultural insensitivity and living on laurels And we shouldn't live on, we should not say, what did we do yesterday? We should say, what have we not done today now? Now, is that a hard sell? Yeah. But we've got a a good reputation and we need to live up to it.
0: Absolutely. One of the things that struck me in the book and reading through the essays, again, things change with the centuries and decades Mm -hmm. coming through those centuries. Quakers, of course, have always been heavily involved in peace work and nonviolence work. Equality has been there from the start, mm-hmm. and at a certain point, uh, particularly after the assassination of Martin Luther King, they ran into each other. Mm-hmm. At that point, uh, yeah. a large number of people in, in the populace said, This nonviolence thing has failed, it's not working. Yeah. The Quakers, who had been very nonviolently oriented and were very excited about the work of Martin Luther King Jr., I think were torn particularly when they're African American. They felt so clearly that. And I think some of the pieces you edited highlighted that. Could you talk about that issue, how it came forth? Yeah.
3: Again, it's different definitions of nonviolence. It's different definitions of peace. You come out of that from where you're at. You come out of an environment where you're used to seeing people who don't look like you, not friendly to you. You can have a different response than if you grew up in and they put everybody's wonderful, nice, and lovely, and everybody likes each other. And I still hold to the doctrine of nonviolence, but nonviolence is it's not. It, people get a, a, bad, a, a bad image of nonviolence as, as sitting there and letting someone beat on you say, I love you, I love you. No, not necessarily. I mean, that's a form of nonviolence, but it's not the only form. Another form of nonviolence is being honestly speaking to the truth and saying, this is what I see, friend. If you don't see the same thing, then we need to talk about it. And don't tell me what you've done in the past. Tell me what you, what, where you are now and, and what you're doing now. Um, I worked for Obama, and I'm very happy to do so, partly because he was African-American, but partly because he knows how to get things done non As a community organizer, you take where you're at and, and you move on. And I think that's something that many friends got lost in the civil rights movement. And they said, this is the only way you can do nonviolence, the, these peaceful demonstrations. This is, and if you don't do it this way, then it's not nonviolent. And I think nonviolent can be stressful. M- look at Poland, uh, like violence in the Solidarity Movement. They helped it with communism nonviolently. Okay, so I think nonviolence gets a bad rap as something that's passive and not political and not struggling and and not in your face. What nonviolence says is we can work this out. It may take some time and we may not like each other for a while. But I believe you can do it because there's that or God in you and there's that or God in me. We just have to find it. And I'm not always going to agree with you. Disagreement is not necessarily negative. It becomes to uh, a response of mutual understanding and then moving on. Everybody has to be treated human, which means everybody has to be seen as having a piece of the truth. You can't have the piece of the truth for if I'm always right, and you're not. One of the things that I think we wanted to stress in this is that, yes, there were some stressful things done. Barrington Dunmore got up in a New York meeting and said, you owe us reparations. Now, reparations, it's an only economic. It's, you have to understand that a lot of the things you have, you have because of us. You did not pay us for the cotton gin. You did not pay us for the zipper. You did not pay us for the railroad coupler. You did not pay us for the process that made plasma. We died in order to do that. You profited it from that. And We're not necessarily asking you for money, but we're asking you to understand that we're much a part of this country as you are. The first person died in Revolutionary War was Christopher's Addis, who was African-American. How, how often do we see African-Americans as patriots and so that's the that's type of nonviolence, the nonviolence that wants to say, okay, we're all equal, and that means that we all have an equal place in the choir, and you need to recognize that. And the fact that you haven't recognized that may not be your fault, but it's now your responsibility. I tell my students that you may not have had slaves, and so are not responsible for that. But now that you know the history, now you're responsible for making sure it doesn't happen again. You're listening to
0: Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production, website, NorthernSpiritRadio.org. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, your host for Spirit in Action. And today I'm honored to have as my co-host, Madeline Schaefer. <laughs> She's producing a series of her own, but she's also assisting on Northern Spirit Radio Productions right now. Our guest is Paul Kreese, one of the co editors of Black Fire African American Quakers on Spirituality and Human Rights. It's a collection of writings over the centuries of those associated with Quakers who are African American. And it's a great glimpse into the interaction of spirituality, religion, and race issues. Peace issues, of course, are primary in there, too. One of the things I wondered about for you, Paul, having grown up primarily black area of town and identifying your people as the people you'd grown up with, When the assassinations of the 1960s, first there was JFK, and there's Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. and there's Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm X. I mean, there's a number of these assassinations. Did you, too, feel like, I guess, nonviolence is not going to work? We can't bring about fine race relations without push no, coming to no. shove?
3: Well, see, that's one, of the, that's one of the difference of basing your political reality on politics and humanity, and basing your politics on God and on religion. I always believe that we can, if we listen to that voice within us, to do things that are consensual and consensual and nonviolent. But if we base too much on the world, on politics, it won't fraud individuals, and we are eventually... You know, there's conflict, there's competition, there's arrogance, there's ego, and all of that involved. So if you just base it on the ability of people, then you're going to be constantly disappointed because people are people. And and it's very difficult. You know, you have... Wives and children and mortgages and tooth repair and college tuition. And, and you have to do some things at times to do that. That uh, Someone once said you never get a PhD without a little squabbling in ways you might not have done it otherwise. And that's true. But there's always that sense that we can always do better that there's always something there that's that spark, that ability to look to the best. And that's where my religious foundation comes in, is that I firmly believe that there's that regard in in everyone especially people I disagree with. It doesn't mean I'm gonna stop disagreeing with them all the time, but it means that i have often called a pathological optimist. Even when I know I shouldn't be positive, I am. Because I know that if I stop, then why should I expect anybody else? If I don't go that extra mile, how can I ask anybody else? And That doesn't mean I'm always happy about it, because I'm not. But I think we're a work in progress. I mean, Quakerism is, if nothing else, continuing revelation. We don't know what's there. All we know is God's going to be there to help us. And with that, you go out and do the things you need to do. And yes, I'm always disappointed. But my philosophy is that we don't always do it, but we can. That there's always the ability to do better. Uh, We just don't always choose it. And, And we feel backed up against the wall. And we don't have examples of people who are backed up against the wall and found a window. Then how can we, if, if a woman doesn't see themselves out in front, why expect them to do something? If you don't see Af- enough, the, the most wonderful thing about Obama being like this, now I can say to my African american students, you too can be president. I can't tell you what that does for me. But that wouldn't have happened had I said, well, it's not going to happen. It's racist and it's never going to be anything else. Well, yeah, it's racist and it's an ongoing, it's, it's, like, it's like alcohol addiction. You're never alcohol-free. But I didn't take a drink today. It's the same with racism. We're not going to get rid of racism. because People get born and people move. And, but I can say today I did something to help make this a better world that's worth all of the problems and sometimes I wish I didn't have that condition but God gave it to me and I guess
0: I'm glad you've got it I'm glad it's it's a condition that I share and so I'm glad to meet someone with the same diagnosis
3: I was
4: wondering what your relationship was to African American Quakers during the 60s
3: and 70s? Oh, well, obviously, I've been I've been involved a lot with African American Quakers in the 60s and 70s. There were very few of them, but people like Julian Bond, who uh, who was educated in a Quaker school, George school, as a matter of fact. And there were other African Americans who I worked with in the Civil Rights Movement. So there were always some... Always, um, um, Hal Weaver was very involved in the Civil Rights Movement when, when he was younger. You know, and I got into some really good discussions some really, really soul-searching, because uh, they said, you you're always asking me to non-violent, you're always asking me to turn the other cheek, but you don't. You're always asking me to integrate, but you don't. And all I could say is, yeah, I do, and a lot of the people I know don't. And so it's up to us to show them that you can do it. I, I had a friend of mine who used to do combat resolution seminars, a big, big, burly black man, um, you know, someone you would say is going to eat you up without even looking. And then there was me. And he would come in and, and say, well, you know, I understand, you know, white folks aren't all that bad. And, and you know, and they were trying. And people go, oh, phew. and I go on and I said, you know, you're wrong. White folks are the devil, because what you have to do is you have to reverse things to let people see the other point of view. It's sort of like I used to do convict resolution seminars, and before then I'd say, now some of you are going to do things that you may not like, and they said, well, I'm never violent. I don't get violent. Fine. So we would go through the convict resolution, and of course, they would lose the call, and then I'd say, okay, now let's talk about the violence you never do. Oh, let's talk about the disagreements or, or the races that you really are. Because unless we understand that we're all human, I mean, I was racist when I grew up. I didn't like white people. I mean, I, my first year in college, I refused to say, people would say, you're white. Said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Well, of course I am. But what I was responding to was the hurt and the hatred pushed against people who I know were really good human beings simply because of something they couldn't help. And so I started identifying with the people who, and these were the people that fed me when I was hungry. Remember in a poor neighborhood, you, you pull together. People gave me clothes when I didn't have them. People defended me. Big, tall, very black folks who defended me in my middle school when other black folks wanted to take on because they just saw Whitey. It's all about relationships. And one of the real problems we have is we live in segregated areas, so we don't have a chance to get to know African Americans. You don't get a chance to know the gay person next to you. You don't get a chance to know those folks who are just really good human beings with their flaws and, and their problems. And that's the hope, is that we can push people into having these dialogues and and I believe that once we have them, we're going to make success and we're never going to do entirely because people get born and they get born into this culture and they have to be educated and some aren't and some never will be but the fact that there are more there when I end my life than there was when I began is a success.
0: One of the very interesting folks featured in this book Black Fire, is Bayard Rustin Yes. Bayard Rustin Evidently, he accepted toning down some of his words and let other people say them so that they wouldn't draw lightning. But I believe he was also gay he, at yep. a time when that yep. was probably yes. worse than being black.
3: Yes, yes, yes. And, and he's, one of, he's one of Hell Weaver's favorite people. And Bayard is actually, his picture's on, on cover because when we were deciding to do the cover, originally the cover was three civil rights workers all white. We say, No, no, we can't do that. And so we but we wanted someone who showed the reality. Well Baird is, is just a perfect example, a nonviolent person who's very, you know, very much in the religious reality. He was and, and that again that shows you the compromises that we ask African Americans to do in order to be in the choir. And and he did it, and that's the point. The point is that these 300 years, all the things we have Afro-Americans to do, they did pretty much. And so here we are um, asking them to give up a lot of who they are in order to fit in. And my response is, I'm surprised it took them 300 years to start getting up on the high horse and say, excuse me, it, it, that's too much, you're asking too much. Uh, we're human beings and we have a right, you know, as someone once said, if you punch me, don't I have a right to say ouch? And we're saying no you don't because we're letting you in the group that's making sure you get punched and that should be privileged enough. And again, it's, it's the cultural reality it's growing up in in a white environment. You don't intentionally do things racist, but that doesn't make them less so. Because someone didn't mean to punch you in the nose, doesn't mean it still doesn't hurt. And don't have a right to say it hurts, even if you didn't do it on purpose.
4: So I was at the William Penn Lecture this year at Art Street Meeting in Philadelphia. And the lecture this year was George Lakey, who does a lot yeah. of work yeah. with class. And he was talking about, he was referred to this book that you published. He was saying that a lot of the reason that white Quakers were so reluctant to, and are still so reluctant to break any molds and to, to really be bold, especially um, when it came to the Civil Rights Movement, was yeah. class.
3: Absolutely. Class was really...
4: It's- more of the reason, yeah. perhaps, yeah. than, than yeah. just reason. I,
3: I would disagree with Georgie, it's more, but it's clearly as much. I mean, Quakers are class, middle class, most I'm middle class now. I mean, I'm clearly middle class now. And, you know, there is a class component to the neighborhoods the neighborhoods we live in the places we go are boarding schools and people said well we never we never could yes you did and because there was no way they could pay the tuition and now some boarding schools are beginning to provide scholarship but i got scholarships when i went because I got vocational rehabilitation scholarship. I got scholarships because my parents made under a certain amount of money. So my tuition was paid at Cole College which is a very high class place. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I had a right, because I was smart and all of that, but also because I was white. Mm-hmm. So it's those yeah. cultural realities and George is absolutely, is absolutely incorrect. Is if we want to really we really want to show it a testimony of equality then we're going to make sure that people can't afford to go to Oberlin or, or go to college or, yeah. uh, or go to all of these nice places. Is You're going to find money to send them mm-hmm. and say, well, they're troublemakers. Well, I'm a troublemaker. I've been a troublemaker since the day I was born. But people call that spirited. Mm-hmm. What they call women, I can't say on air. And what they say to blacks is that they're uppity or or that they're violent.
4: Well, part of what George talks about is that it's really... Classes have different approaches to conflict, Mm -hmm. and that is really the crux or or that's really where a lot of the problems come yep. in, where yep. um, middle class people like to keep everything nice and smooth. We that's don't right. we like We're to process, we like to work yeah. around yeah. everything. Yeah. Working class people yeah. are much more confrontational. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> and so we kind of get scared <laughs> yes. of that yep. when we see it in black friends, especially when they're angry because right. they've been mistreated.
3: Well, and we also see it in all laws. I mean, heroin, which is a lower class, and cocaine, which is upper class, uh, the penalties for cocaine are a lot less than are for heroin. And again, it's that cultural sense. It's And again, it's that structural class reality. I know African-American people who are middle class in Richmond who would never think of going down to the other side of town because they just don't. Have, and I'm going, my God, your grandparents live down there. Well, we don't. Well, maybe you should. So again, it yeah, uh, class is class is very much a part in, and of course, no class in, in and and religion, economics swirl in, but because there's a difference between episcopal and score and storefront fundamentalist. But are religion, well, that that's not really religion. Well, who are you to say that God doesn't speak to them in a storefront as much as God speaks to you from the pulpit? Again, because of the economic divide, poor whites and poor blacks tend to get the bad end of everything, and then get blamed for it.
0: We're getting to the end of our hour here. I want to end with a question, and Mm -hmm. that is 25 words or less, or maybe (laughs) up to 37. I'm not in charge here. This book, Black Fire: African American Quakers on Spirituality and Human Rights. Why should our listeners want to read it?
3: Well, they want to read it if they want to understand who they're living next door to. They want to understand it who their president is. They want to understand it. They want to understand their history, their background. They want to understand why this whole thing called white and black. Came And if the Quakers, they won't understand it because they wanna understand what they've done and what they need to do.
0: Paul, I want to thank you for providing some light. And like you, I come from, I guess, a lower class family. So I'm not afraid to mix it up at all. I'm, yeah. I'm happy for a little bit of noise. It doesn't scare me. It's really wonderful to meet another lower-class <laughs> Quaker here. Lower-class Quaker, someone who will provide some yeast for our society to improve, because what I think we all really want yeah. is for each of us to be yeah. the best person we yeah. can to help this yeah. world be the best world it can
3: well, be. And you know George Fox was an itinerant person that couldn't read, so we're in good company. <laughs>
0: Again, Paul, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Yeah.
4: Yes, thank you, Paul.
3: Well, and thank you both for letting me be here.
0: That was Paul Kreese, co-editor of Blackfire. And as I promised, I'll end up with the second half of David Massengill's masterpiece on racism he saw growing up, Number One in America. See you next week for Spirit in Action.
2: To stay number one in America The Klux Klan, still around With the permit to march in my hometown But only on Virginia's ground The Tennessee side turned them down The sheriff stood there with his deputies I to to keep the peace But he made us this guarantee By God they'll not march into Tennessee Network cameras were triple-teared We laughed and cried and hooted in jeered But mostly we stood there holding fear Till the Ku Klux Klan disappeared In some far-off distant and dawn When the black is president and not upon Will they burn crosses on the White House lawn? And talk of all those days by Imagine them telling us how to live. Imagine them telling us how to live. We're number one in America, number one in America. We drum for up the sand, overcoming Birmingham. Oh, to be number one. In America Last Christmas Eve At the Kmart store A white family there They was dirt poor Father said kids Pick one toy no more Even though we can ill afford I watched your son Choose a basketball The oldest girl So sure, the littlest girl chose a black-skinned doll, and she held it to her chest and all. I watched to see how they'd react, since they were white and the doll was black. But the mom and dad were matter-of-fact, they just checked to see if the doll was correct. So may you make a rebel stand where black and white go hand in hand till they reach the freedom land where the lion lies down with the lamb. Oh, number one in America, number one in America. Beat the drum for up the sand, overcoming oh, in Birmingham. Dynamite in a Baptist church. Four teenage girls lost in the lurch fire hoses and the billy clubs The police dogs and the racist thugs The back the clock, the little rock Bought and sold on the auction block Night riders in hey, the lynching mob Lawmen say they're only doing their To stay number one in America
0: May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With
1: every voice, with every song, we will move this world.